Welcome to Global Data Pod, JP Morgan's podcast on all things going on in the global economy. Today, we're going to do a, a research wrap around a special report that has just been published by Joe Lupton and Alex Wise on debt sustainability or the lack thereof. So, Joe and Alex, you guys have spent a little bit of time immersing yourself in this. Uh, let's just start with where we are. Uh, which is how badly have things deteriorated really over the last two cycles. Uh, and it's been pretty dramatic. So why don't you give us all the all of the details on that, Joe? Yeah, sure. So what's striking is that we've had these kind of two uh, once in a century uh, global downturns that have all happened within a period of like 15 years uh, and how that has played out uh, across the, the fiscal space has been has been pretty darn dramatic. Uh, you know, if you would have looked at government debt uh, over the kind of since the, in the post World War II period, starting in around actually in in the early seventies, debt had uh, bottomed and started to increase. It increased about forty percentage points between the mid seventies up to just before the global financial crisis. So about a percentage point a year, gradual trend up. But it then shot up, right? The GFC happened, and you had a, uh, you know, a significant increase on the order of about, uh, I guess, thirty percentage points uh, in the developed markets as a whole. Similar thirty percentage points in the in the U.S. Uh, and then that was like a, a material event, right? And and you know, fast forward, the pandemic happens, yet another material event. Debt did not increase as much, but still, it was up about. 13 to 15 percentage points of GDP uh, across the, the developed market. So within a very short period of time, uh, you've had debt move up on the order of about, uh, you know, about 40 percentage points, the same it took uh, nearly close to half a century to do in the prior period. So it was a huge fiscal blowout. I will say one last before turning, Bruce, I, I want to emphasize that it's very easy to look at this as kind of fiscal profligacy. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, a, a lot of credit needs to be given to governments for actually supporting what could have been a much worse outcome, right? And you can get stuck into these low growth equilibrium where, you know, weak growth means less revenues, which means even worse fiscal outturn. So we're trying not to put much judgment on whether it was the right or wrong thing here. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the perhaps the lasting legacy of these two crises has been a, a massive increase in uh, public sector debt. But we should recognize consequences. And that's kind of where I think we want to be going with this. So we've got this big buildup in debt. Um, so let's just start with the issue at hand. You, you define this piece as being one about sustainability. Um, what do you mean by sustainability and, and what is the, um, prospects for, uh, debt to stabilize or move lower over the course of the next few years? Yeah. Sustainability is, is, a is actually a very hard concept. It's kind of like whatever people are willing to buy, right? I mean, if people are willing to buy government paper, then I, it, I guess it's, it's sustainable. And the, you know, you tend to look at, you know, the ability of a, of a government to pay back that debt. That's the, that will be determined whether someone's going to want to buy that paper. Uh, and so you might say, well, the debt to GDP ratio is what we should be looking at. Those are the numbers I was just talking about. Uh, the reason that's not very good is you can just look around the world and you can see lots of countries with you know incredibly high levels of debt. Japan is a case in point. 
uh, with some of the highest debt levels in the world relative to GDP and no sign of pressure there yet. And we can, you know, obviously that's always kind of a, a concern that's lingering out there, but they've ratcheted up debt dramatically without any, any crisis. So you can't just look at debt to GDP. So what we turn to is something maybe a, a bit more literal and, a, and a, a bit simpler, which is just say, what does it take to stabilize debt? And that you can you can just bring your kind of macroeconomic uh, budget constraints into this, and that's what we do. We provide a framework here to, uh, you know, look at the driving fundamentals in terms of interest rate growth, where levels of debt are, to assess, you know, how likely is it for governments to be able to uh, at least just stabilize debt at the current levels relative to GDP. So, when you look across countries, what's the What's the main message? Who's got the most pressure in terms of when you kind of put those numbers together, which which are obviously going to be partly linked to where you assess potential growth to be, where you assess um, uh, fiscal positions to be right now? Who's got the most problems in terms of even getting to that that level of just stabilizing debt that you just described? Yeah. So, I mean, when you look uh, around the world and, and let me first say, like, th- there are three key fundamentals that, that are going to drive this uh, ability to stabilize debt. Obviously, your starting debt level matters. Uh, the higher debt, the more interest costs you're going to have, and and therefore the higher primary balance you're going to need to service that debt. So higher interest rates work against you. The more growth you have, the more revenues you can you can use to, to kind of pay off that debt. And so the higher growth is, uh, the, the, the lower primary balance you uh, really need to stabilize debt. So that, that's a, that's a, a, a benefit. Um, and so it's kind of debt, interest rates, and growth that are the most important. So let me, let, me ac- put a, let me put a couple of countries on the table for you. you yeah, have, yeah. You have Japan, which is, by our estimates, about 170% net debt to GDP. And then you have the U.S., which is about uh, 100%, slightly below. Yeah. Um, so you have those two countries with very different starting positions. How do the other variables come into play in terms of how you think about uh, the evolution of debt going forward for those two, which are not not the extreme, but they're they're close to the extremes? Yeah. So you know, Japan is the important thing to recognize here. It's the gap between the interest rate and the growth rate. So I said, you know, uh, interest rates hurt you, growth helps you. Uh, it's even simpler than that. It's the gap between the two that that matters. So when you look at the U.S., uh, you have interest rates that are running certainly higher than they are in Japan. So that hurts the U.S. But at the same time, you've got growth, which is also running higher than in Japan. So that helps the U.S. and hurts Japan. Uh, then the, the third factor is just the level of debt is much higher, which you mentioned. When you put all that together, the the, the net of that is that Japan is just got a much, much more higher hurdle to reach debt stability than the U.S. In fact, across all countries, Japan really stands out as a country that is just going to have debt keep rising uh, without significant changes in its primary balances. So I can put numbers on that, right? So uh, in, the, in, in Japan, you would need to have a nine percentage point fiscal consolidation just to stop debt from rising. Right now, you compare that uh, to the U.S., uh, where it's more like four and a half percent. Now, four and a half percent is is tough. I mean, if we were sitting here talking about U.S. 
uh, you know, doing a fiscal consolidation package or austerity package of four and a half percent of GDP, that would be a material event and arguably wouldn't even be able to get make progress because if you did that, it would drive a big recession that would then undercut your revenues, which would make it difficult to even achieve the four and a half percent. And that's the that's the challenge of trying to do this. But to your question, Bruce, I mean, Japan is definitely off the, the, the charts or at the far end of the spectrum here. U.S., I would say, is. Uh, somewhere in the in the middle of the pack, and then you've got places like the Scandies, you know, your uh, your uh, Norway, Sweden, Germany, which are probably in better better positions. Just make sure I understand. You you said Japan needs something like a nine percent surplus to stabilize debt. A but, nine percent, uh, yeah, nine percentage point change from their current. They're currently running a seven point four percent deficit. They need to get it up to one point six plus one point six. Okay, so they need a modest positive surplus. You're saying exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay, just let's make sure we get that distinction. Yes. Yeah. Um, In and fact, uh, if you were just look at the developed markets as a whole, developed markets need roughly a primary balance, just a touch in the positive territory uh, to get. Uh, to stabilize debt. You might say, oh, that's great. But the problem is you're currently sitting at minus three and a half. So that's a fairly large uh, you know, fiscal austerity measure that would need to take place to just to hit debt sustain or debt stability. Or you need to have uh, some positive things happen here in terms of the way we think about the the cycle influencing and i mean i know you're you're thinking about the primary balance in terms of cyclically adjusted but these things are quite quite sensitive in ways that we don't always appreciate but no, you're, you're 100% right bruce i mean so i that when i say current i mean current right so we are currently sitting with deficits that are fairly large and in fact in the piece we also go through the what what's driving that the expenditure versus revenue size and what's been very interesting about this expansion versus the post GFC is that in contrast to the post GFC revenue where revenues took a long time to recover revenues never really even fell in the in the pandemic relative to GDP mm-hmm. right I would be clear about that revenues fell but they did not fall relative to GDP and so in a in that relative sense revenues are are sitting fine they're above their pre-pandemic norm uh norms what what is it what's also elevated is expenditures expenditures soared post pand in the pandemic they have come down quite rapidly faster than after the gfc but are still well above their their uh their pre-pandemic levels which is why deficits are still depressed and to your point you know, you're right that there is a cyclical element here and we will get some of a, you know, DM as a whole minus three and a half percent on the primary. Some of that will be cyclically, uh, will lift on a cyclical basis. But I, I think I can't remember where the structural uh, is on that. It's still shy of what you need for stability. So I think the, the challenges are still there. So let's talk about sensitivity to the cycle. And I guess the most interesting part to start with that is the interest rate cycle. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I think there's issues on Japan where if you look at the the measures of debt um, uh, maturity in the hands of the public, which are something close to 10, 10 years in the U.S., which is close to six years, which would suggest that, you know, it's going to be relatively slow in terms of how these um, um, uh, debt servicing cost interests go up in, in a world in which interest rates are rising. But there's some complications there based on what Governments, not governments, but central banks have been doing with their balance sheet. Uh, yeah, you know, give us a sense of how important uh, central bank uh, purchases of uh, government debt have been 
in terms of affecting the debt debt math as we go forward here. Yeah, that, that's actually it's a very fascinating aspect when you start thinking about kind of fiscal debt. And, and the important thing for listeners to understand is that all of that quantitative easing, when central banks are out there buying debt, uh, all of that is is included in the debt outstanding. So in that sense, the, the central banks are treated as outside the, the, the fiscal public sector. So when you look at debt outstanding in the U.S., um, you know, part of the, uh, the 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 Fed owns part of that debt. Similarly, when you look at um, you know the the debt outstanding in Japan, the Bank of Japan owns a, a huge chunk of that. Um, and so then, how do you think about this? And what what's fascinating is that if you want to, uh, you might say, oh well, they can just keep buying this debt, and that may take some pressure off off uh, off gov off the fiscal authorities. But the problem is, is that, you know, in a world where central banks are paying interest on reserves, what you're effectively doing is you're shortening the, the duration of the consolidated government, right? Central banks are effectively a part of the government. So what we do in the piece here is we actually add uh, or we swap out the longer term holdings like in the Fed SOMA which are holding, uh, you know, duration a bit longer than the, the private sector, uh, you know, but for that asset on the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, there's a liability, which is a reserve, a, an overnight reserve. So if you want to consolidate the public sector in total, the Fed with the, with the U.S. Uh, government, then you need to account for that, li that overnight liability, which is a reserve, which is effectively just shortening the average maturity of overall U.S. liabilities. And so when we do that, you actually get U.S., uh, you know, U.S., you know, weighted average maturity of, of overall U.S. debt falling from, I believe, a little over six down to a little over four years. Um, so you've actually increased the sensitivity to short-term rates. In Japan, where debt is, is actually, the duration is a bit longer, but the BOJ has been buying a lot more the, the delta is much bigger, right? But uh, you're going from, I believe, about 10 years down to something like six years. Uh, so you're taking off four years of, of the weighted average maturity uh, of, uh, of Japanese debt. And so the way to think about this is that just that government debt now becomes more sensitive to interest rates and to, to shorter interest rates. And so when central banks feel the need to fight inflation to maintain their inflation mandates, uh, you know, that is going to feed through into the into the overall government debt stability or sustainability picture a bit more. So it's actually a bit of a complicating factor. And I, I think it's very it's a very interesting one. So let me turn to Alex for a second and and kind of recognizing that uh, with those higher debt uh, levels outstanding, with some of the shifts that have gone on in government policy, there is a real risk here that interest rates uh, going up are uh, uh, a potential uh, pressure point here that could be quite significant. Um, let's leave aside the very short term in the business cycle, which obviously we're dealing with central banks having to fight inflation right now. But let's think about this on a more secular basis. Um, you know, I guess I, when I look at this, I kind of ask myself the question, you know, given the dramatic changes 
you describe in the piece, given the difficulty of getting the debt levels onto some path that's going to be stabilizing, why aren't long-term interest rates responding more significantly to that? And you know, you, you, Alex, have done quite a bit of work on this issue of determining longer-term interest rates. Are we simply not valuing correctly the impact of these um, debt run-ups in terms of the way um, uh, interest rates are going to evolve here over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, so I think, as you mentioned, it's something that we've given a lot of thought in long-term strategy. Um, and I think what you're alluding to is right in the sense that I think uh, the role that this debt accumulation could play is actually underplayed to an extent. Uh, and when we've thought about this, we think really the reason why is uh, it's always been a force pushing real yields up in our judgment. But since the 1980s, all of these other long-term structural forces like slower economic growth, uh, growing longevity, demographic changes that are leading to growth in the savings glut, is essentially masking the effect of the debt accumulation in our view. That we're not actually seeing uh, an effect of this debt accumulation that we've seen on real yields, and therefore essentially discounting the, the fact that uh, uh, driving real yields. Um, and so essentially we think that in the circumstances that Joe's described looking forward, that this is going to be a big feature moving forward. Uh, especially, as I said, we're describing a world where debt is not being stabilized. Uh, so I think this is certainly a big force pushing uh, real yields up in a structural way. Uh, as I said, we think that that's probably being discounted at the moment with the sense that we're going to return to a more recent normal that we've seen in the post year. So in your longer term analysis, to what degree, let's just assume that the work you guys did makes sense and not only are we not going to stabilize debt over the next few years but we're going to have a grinding move up in it you know how much does that matter for long-term interest rates are we talking about compared to what we were before the um uh the pandemic or if you if you want to go back to before the gfc how much should that matter in terms of the valuation of longer term uh yields yes this is always a a tough question when one's thinking about... We're not going to ask you easy the, questions, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> the long-term dynamics of real yield. I think So the baseline estimate that I recall in the literature is 1% of GDP is three base points uh, on, on debt. So if we're talking about, say, a 30 or a 40 percentage point increase in debt as a share of GDP, then you're potentially looking up to about 100 basis points, 120 basis points effect on real yields based on the, the historical estimates. Uh, those historical estimates are coming from a time where debt accumulation was was more moderate than what we're seeing now. So it's potentially up for grabs whether, whether those numbers are the same, but I think that's the benchmark. When we consider this in light of all of the other factors, uh, what we're looking- Well, can I just at, jump, jump in there? If, if all else is equal, and we're, we're talking about more than a 50 percentage point rise in debt, uh, you're talking about something that could raise debt servicing costs by 150 basis points or so, right? Right. If I just if I just take a round number, based on show, show from your point of view, that's that translates all else equal, of course, into something over a percentage point on the primary surplus that you need just to stabilize debt. Is that that mm -hmm. that simple math is right? So that's a you know that's a reasonably 
significant loss in opportunities for governments if if at some point here we have to stabilize things. The the question I want to turn to now, Joe, is if we think about that as the as part of the cost, there are other things that could happen here. Are there fixes here that we might consider? And the obvious one is to think about inflation. <laughs> um, and you know, there has been a benefit of the 2021-22 inflation uh, rise, especially since it hasn't by itself raised uh, average borrowing costs. And it has, of course, reduced the real value of the debt. Can you can you run that further? Is that a is that a possible way to get some of the these this unpleasant arithmetic down to more manageable levels? I I, I actually think that's a um, short short answer is I don't believe so. I think it's not only don't I believe so. I think it's a little dangerous to start thinking that way. Uh, not just forward-looking, which is maybe the more obvious one I'll get to in a second, but let me also just point out that even in what we've seen over this period of unexpected inflation, uh, you know, in, in the in the past couple of years here, we think that the inflation alone, the direct effect of that, has probably reduced debt to GDP on the order of seven percentage points. So that's pretty pretty darn meaningful. Now, just on that point alone, I would say. You can't take that event in a in a vacuum, right? I mean, the inflation, the 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 surge in inflation has come with lots of costs, right? So even if it helps you a little bit on the debt side, or even a lot on the debt side, it also came with tremendous costs that aren't really being measured in that calculus alone. And I would say on net, I'm not sure the world feels better about having near double digit inflation. Uh, you know, some of the highest inflation rates we've seen in 40 years. And because what we got for it was a seven percentage point of GDP reduction in debt. I don't think that's a trade off people would want to make. And then that that and that's just looking backward at what we've seen. Looking forward, I think you have to be careful and distinguish between expected and unexpected inflation. Right. In fact, if you look at the formulations that we lay out in the in the piece, it really is the gap between expected and unexpected inflation, unexpected uh, inflation or actual inflation and expected inflation. So unexpected inflation will give you some near term relief, although I think there are other costs that I just mentioned. But once, you know, kind of fool me once, you know, sh shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, uh, you know, expectations will start to build in those uh, higher levels of inflation, and that will push up yields, right? So we know interest rates are sensitive to expected inflation. And so whatever you gain from inflation going up, which is pushing up your nominal growth rate, also is pushing up your, uh, your real yield. Uh, yeah. And that is something that undercuts, I think, any potential benefit. It also, remember, don't forget that a lot of the costs are indexed, right? Social Security, where we just got you know, $100 billion of extra Social Security in January because of last year's inflation surge. So that indexed spending will just completely be, um, you know, offset whatever inflation gain you're getting. And then the last thing I'd say is that, uh, and it comes back to this issue of what are the other costs related to this, constituents hate inflation, right? And the elderly particularly hate inflation. So it's not 
clear that any of this policy mix of going down the inflation route is going to help you. Very last thing I'll say, the best solution here is to get growth up, right? I mean, that that is the that is the kind of, you know, if you can get the growth rate through some type of structural reforms, generate a world in which, uh, and by the way, maybe the reason interest rates are rising, we think, in, in Alex's long-term world is because partly not just savings we think is going to be coming down, but also because we think there's lots of new things around the corner to be investing in, whether it's green revolution, biotechnology, artificial intelligence. Let, all me, this let, me, let me jump in here because I think you, you, you make a point which is important and, but, and straightforward, which is if you get better growth, you can uh, have a better uh, set of trade-offs on your fiscal adjustments. However, let me also just raise the observation that if I look at the countries that have had high debt already and have been living with it, and I'll, I'll note Japan and Italy here, those are two of the countries which have had the lowest potential growth. So the, the question is here, you want to lift growth, but the high debt levels themselves are a constraint on what policymakers uh, might be able to do. Uh, so should we be more worried that, you know, rather than the high debt levels are, are a clarion call for raising potential growth, that the high debt levels are going to be a source of weaker potential growth looking forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the higher levels of debt are a, if you're in a world of an aging population uh, and uh, lower potential growth, and that's kind of lowering your longer run structural interest rates, that's making it more attractive for governments to be borrowed. I do think the, you know, 30, 40 year secular decline in interest rates has made it easier for governments to run these debt levels up. And that is, I, I believe that Alex's work, that everything that we're, we're going to see a secular rise in interest rates over the next, you know, 20, 30 years. And that will lift, I think, by the CBO's estimate, the, you know, federal spending on interest costs will go from like one and a half percent of GDP up to about seven percent of GDP uh, by the time you get to 2050. And that's a that's a big chunk of the pie. But I do think one of the reasons interest costs are rising and interest rates are rising is because growth will start to look better. And I think that is going to help you. The, this is the, this is the pro, not problem, but this is the complicating part of this. All these things are endogenous. They're all moving together. And you have to understand why growth is moving, why interest rates are moving. And I'm a believer that growth does get, get better as we see these new, this need for investment and in all of these new technologies that are going to come, come around in the next 30 years. And that will, I, I, that will help, I think, at least moderate the, the increased costs here. Okay. Um, well, let me then kind of give you an opportunity to wrap this up. If you're uh, sitting here having, you know, laid out this piece saying, hey, we've got a huge run up in debt, it's going to be really hard to uh, unwind it here. If you think about the world, let's not talk about the next year or two specifically with regard to what central banks need to do and whether we're going to have recessions. But if you think about some horizon over the next three to five years, you know, what is the major message you would want to leave about how this has an imprint on macroeconomic performance? And I'll let both of you have a word on it. Alex, do you want to take a stab at that first? I think about it a bit longer. <laughs> do you want to give Joe the the, the first word? I'll give we'll Joe the honor. All right. Uh, so, you know, I think like with most 
problems, there's no one solution. It comes through a number of different channels. And and here, I think we've we've simplified things in a way. And I and I actually think there is an element of simplicity to the to the math that we lay out in this in terms of the 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 framework. Uh, it, but it it does mean you gotta um, you're gonna have to spend a little less. You're gonna have to tax a little bit more. And I do think you need you need to put in reforms that can grow a little bit more. That's your kind of manna from heaven. If you can, it can do that aspect. I, I just mentioned a minute ago that I, I am somewhat optimistic on what the growth prospects are uh, after what, you know, probably 20 years of falling potential growth. I think, you know, just as rates are rising, I do think there's, we're around the corner on seeing some of those growth rates start to start to increase. But that is not going to get us out. I, I do think you need, you're going to have to have some reduced spending um, and some increased taxation. And I, I, I think when you start to look at, and we didn't really even talk about yet, a lot of the liabilities that aren't even in these numbers we, 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 that are in this report, right? I mean, the, the unfunded uh, pension programs, the social security system in the U.S. and pension programs elsewhere, those aren't really measured in these debt numbers yet, but there's an unfunded liability that's out there. And I think to to solve those problems, I know it's a it's the kind of third rail of of politics, but I do think you probably need some type of reforms to and those can be very progressive or regressive. And you can if you're kind of left leaning, right leaning, you can solve those problems in different ways. But there are solutions and I, I, they involve some form of increased spend or decreased spending and, and increased uh, tax uh, revenues. But that has to be a part of the picture. So short answer is it's a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, things, or, you know, I should say actually a, a little of a lot of different things that can help, um, uh, you know, put you on a, a sustainable path here. All right, Alex, we'll leave you with the last word. I think just to, to tap into something that Joe is mentioning there, I think there's going to be a feature uh, in the future that some of these new expenditures are going to be somewhat inexorable. As we're seeing the demographic change, we're going to see ballooning expenses on, say, uh, pension entitlements and the like. Don't forget climate, too, in this um, mess, yeah, too. Exactly. And I think that's actually what I'm thinking about. But one potential response, I think, to this, as my own kind of personal opinion wise, is finding a new revenue source, like, say, carbon pricing is something that's producing a revenue source, but actually achieving some of the other fundamental goals or making progress towards that. Uh, to, uh, to address an issue that, that is not going anywhere, as you're saying. So I think certainly there's potentially an argument for substantial reform of finding new revenue sources, um, whether it's going to be feasible to cut expenses very much in the coming future, I think is, is, is going to be very difficult from my perspective. All right. So I have to say that um, I'm kind of struck by both your pessimism about the the near-term debt issue and your unwillingness to draw pessimistic conclusions going into the future <laughs> on it. So I'll uh, I'll just leave well, that Bruce, observation. Well, I, Bruce, I, I, I will say, I mean, I think that actually makes sense, right? Because it, what I've learned in the past, you know, really since the pandemic is that there is an ability to be faced with what seems like insurmountable challenges, whether it be the pandemic or whether it be the 
the energy crisis in Europe. And when you let one markets work, two governments step in to try to provide a support, and three, you just bring in human ingenuity, i.e., you know, turning around a vaccine in less than a year for something that we thought was going to take seven years, or getting, you know, LNG terminals in in Germany, when people were telling us that it was going to take three years to build LNG terminals, and now you got like two or three of them opening right now, less than a year. So. I do think when you get those pressures uh, and it does involve some fiscal support uh, and it does involve some human ingenuity, I think you could you, you we've been amazed at what can happen. So, yeah, the near term, I, I am very concerned. It's very daunting. But if you're going to give me the next 20 to 30 years, do I think that we'll be able to come up with some solutions? And if you make you know corrections, you know, can we can we do the right thing? Maybe. I suppose if you look at climate change and what people were warning 20 years ago, the, <laughs> the prospects don't look good because they didn't really make many changes yet. So uh, uh, nonetheless, so, I guess I remain I, an optimist. I guess I want to just temper that by saying I think it's a very different world when you're thinking about how does uh, policy and, and more generally behavior respond to things which are crises as opposed to how do we deal with more chronic forces that are weighing on performance. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think in the, in the, in the context of this, I look at it more as the latter, more of a chronic potential drag. And if I look at the specific experience of countries like Italy and Japan, or I look at the more general trends, as you noted, with regard to climate, with regard to other things, uh, I don't think we're actually very good in dealing with slow moving chronic, uh, problems. Uh, mm -hmm. And th that's what I, I worry less about a crisis being caused by this in the next five or seven years, but more about continuing to, to put us into a place where the trade-offs and the, uh, you know, choices we make in terms of what we do today for future performance is, um, is turning more, more negative. So anyway, yeah, I said, I said, I would give fair. you the last word, Alex, but I decided to <laughs> to jump in there, as as you can say, I often do. Um, but let's leave it. I think what is more important than anything else is that there should be debate on this topic. It's it's in the background to some degree right now as we talk about macro issues, but it's it's a pretty central one if we start to extend the horizon beyond the immediate uh, business cycle. So um, you know, hopefully, people will take a look at the work and draw their own conclusions as to how they see the. Uh, the implications of this for the path ahead. But uh, thank you guys, and thanks everyone for listening to Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 27, 2023.